When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities, Presidential Greatness Edition. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Well, we are back, although in a slightly different form. This podcast started as an experiment. And after 36 episodes, we're going to call in an even three dozen in phase one of the experiment. Construction on phase two begins now, which is to say that we are going to turn our attention to other matters. First, we're going to look into why we refer to ourselves in the third person. Second, we're going to take on the presidency, shifting the content of this podcast, not from uh, the antics of those trying to get into the White House, but to the antics of those who were successful in getting there. The campaign version of Whistle Stop was animated in part by the 2016 campaign raging around it. We have a new president now, Donald Trump, and so we have a new sense of animation. My interest in the presidential campaign has always been driven by my interest in whether or not campaigns show us anything about whether the candidate is fit for the office of the presidency. Well, we're past that question now. Uh, Whistle Stop's episodes only glanced on that idea, uh, but now I'm going to look at it more in terms of the presidency itself, the fitness and attributes of the president more directly, at least that's my hope. But in the same way that the campaign stories gave us context for the 2016 campaign, I hope these stories give us context for the current presidency. We are in a time of dropping standards and a changing time when long-held realities are being thrown overboard and we are discovering new realities. And what, what is new and what's not new when Donald Trump appears to set his advisors against one another, is that his own particular brand of chaos? Or does that match what FDR did by design and what Clinton may have done by mistake? And if there are similarities, what represents the whole new craziness of a new presidency? My hope is that we essentially create a whistle-stop version of the presidency. You'll get the same stories, but they'll revolve around presidents, presidential decisions, presidential administrations, the culture of the time, and yet to be named other exciting bits of this and that. I also have some partially formed theories about leadership that I've written about a lot and that we'll also try to explore in some of these stories. For those of you who are diehard whistle-stop uh, phase one fans – there is a little bit of a holiday offer. You can order the New York Times bestseller Whistle Stop, which is available for holiday gift giving. And if you do and write in to whistlestopbook at gmail.com with proof of purchase, I'll send you a signed book plate. That's whistlestopbook, all one word, at gmail.com. So what am I going to do with this new idea? Well, I'm going to get in touch with the other half of my bookshelves. The one half is packed with campaign books, and you've heard the product of that over the last 36 episodes, but there is another sort of book in the bookshelves, and those are the Presidential Greatness books, books like Presidential Power by Richard Neustadt, The Presidential Difference by Fred Greenstein, the works of James McGregor Burns, and a favorite book of mine, The Paradoxes of the American Presidency, which is a more academic look 
at the presidency. And I like it because its central theme and, and notion is that the presidency is a paradox. And presidents, it's, it's in their interest to define the office in stark terms and define it in a way that elevates their best qualities. But there are always qualities at the opposite end of the spectrum uh, that they lack, but that are a part also of the presidency. So, for example, we demand powerful presidential leadership, but we're also suspicious of powerful presidents. So with Donald Trump, uh, people are, his voters are drawn to his power, but at the same time, they are uh, the kinds of voters who hate a strong central government, which is what he is essentially promising. One of the great paradoxes within Donald Trump's campaign and persona and the presidency itself is on the one hand, we want a common man, a person in touch with all the regular people, but yet also we elevate star power. He obviously is a representative of both of those things. So the paradoxes of the American presidency will play a big role. And I'm also anxious to dip into books like The President's House, which is a two-volume book dedicated to the physical White House, which I've dipped into for various things now and again, but will return to. So what am I fumbling around for? Well, I've mentioned it before, standards. So what does history tell us about how a president should behave? What was possible at the time? What is possible for all presidents? And what do we know about the constraints of the office? What do FDR's fireside chats tell us about Donald Trump's incendiary tweets? Maybe they tell us nothing. Maybe they tell us something important. Maybe the reaction to, uh, to them tell us something about our moment. One of the things that campaigns do is they... They distort the presidency. They make it seem like it's an action hero office where a righteous executive can do anything. But it's not that. It's not that. It's a, it's a, it's a lumpier office. So where exactly are the lumps? And where is Donald Trump exacerbating them or perhaps smoothing them out? One of my favorite books is Presidential Greatness by Thomas Bailey. It's good on its own terms, but it's also a bit antiquated. One of the things I like about it is its definition of the presidency this way. Bailey writes, statesmanship is the science of alternatives, and presidents almost always have to choose not between the good and the bad, but between the bad and the less bad. And now here's how Barack Obama explained the presidency in an interview with Michael Lewis of Vanity Fair. Nothing comes to my desk that is perfectly solvable. Otherwise, this is the president speaking, otherwise someone else would have solved it. So you wind up dealing with probabilities. Any given decision you make, you'll wind up with a 30 to 40% chance that it's not going to work. You have to own that and feel comfortable with the way you make the decision. You can't be paralyzed by the fact that it might not work out. On top of all this, after you have made your decision, you need to feign total certainty about it. People being led do not want to think probabilistically. So what Obama said is exactly what Bailey wrote, although the two are almost 60 years apart. And in this answer, you hear Obama talk about his attention to systems, something I love since I, I love systems and how we do what we do and why we set things up the way we do and how we change the way we do what we do to be more productive and efficient and deliver more meaning. So when Obama's talking about systems, what he, that's what he means when he says you have to feel comfortable with the way you made the decision. So that's something I believe. If you believe your system is, in, is good, then it provides two things, as much certainty as possible that you made a good decision, and it also helps you not second guess. So if your process was as tight as possible, then you can move on to the next decision. Even if it's got this inherent probability in it, you know you've done as much as you can to squeeze it down to the to the least amount of probability or the least amount of chance, and then you let the chips fall where they may. But here's another approach. Know that you have to decide, 
follow your gut, and then have a psychological bleaching ability that allows you to have no regrets. You don't need to build a system if you have that going on in your noggin. You just need to have the kind of temperament that allows you to make a decision and not look back and be fine with it. So that might make it easier to make decisions. It also might make it easier to keep from being racked with fussing about the decisions you've made or the systems you've got to put in place so that you can make better decisions. But it also might lead to super sloppy decision making in which there is no system for other people to get on board with. There isn't a system which others can follow, either in your administration or in the public. And when the moments get truly hairy, your gut-level decision-making may leave you feeling bereft and, and without guardrails, and you end up talking to the paintings. So we'll look at presidents who are at various places on that spectrum. George W. Bush said he never looked back on a decision. Barack Obama said there were few decisions he made that he did not revisit. What Obama said about feigning total certainty reminded me of something Eisenhower said about optimism. His argument was essentially a leader had to operate with total optimism. A president must show constantly show uh, a face to those around him of constant optimism and confidence. Fred Greenstein writes that it was a lesson that Eisenhower learned as a military commander. This is Eisenhower speaking. Optimism and pessimism are infectious, and they spread more rapidly from the head down than in any direction. That was Eisenhower. And from then on, he said, he, quote, firmly determined that my mannerisms in speech in public would always reflect the cheerful certainty of victory. So that, of course, sounds like Donald Trump. You're going to be winning so much you're going to get tired of it. So then the question is, well, when Donald Trump says that, and people think it's, it's a part of his bombast and his lack of attachment to reality. But he may know a deeper truth that Eisenhower knew, which is that you always have to show optimism and take the hit of, from people who think you're a Pollyannish huckster because you get the benefit of that sense of conveying optimism uh, to people. Now, Eisenhower defeated the Axis powers, Donald Trump, which gave him standing to make those claims that are different than the ones Donald Trump made, where he admits in his own writing that his sense of optimism is phony sometimes in order to kind of get people to try to believe something that isn't true for his purposes. So what are the differences there? We'll ruminate on those kinds of ideas. I'm going to explore some other notions at the bedrock of the presidency. Or are they at the bedrock of the presidency? FDR said the presidency is preeminently a place of moral leadership. Mike Pence, the incoming vice president, said during the Clinton years that the first family was a moral example of the country. So is that true now with Donald Trump? What does the concept of moral leadership even mean? Do we mean domestic moral leadership? Is it possible, given what Donald Trump has said that he knew was being recorded and what Donald Trump has said that he did not know was being recorded, that he is a moral uh, force for anything? Or is this strictly a foreign policy matter? Uh, when when Fidel Castro died, there was a lot of talk in moral terms about him being a despicable dictator. Donald Trump used those kinds of terms. But is that more than just rhetoric when you've got a, a president in Donald Trump who has made it clear that America doesn't have standing to tell other countries what to do because America is in such bad shape? So what role does the moral leadership of a president play? Woodrow Wilson said the presidency allows a man to, quote, be as big as 
a man as he wants to be. He wrote that when he was a presidential scholar before he became president, once he was in office. He railed against Congress, just like every other president. It turned out, in reality, a president couldn't be as big a man as he wants to be. We'll talk about groupthink and the power to tell a president no. We'll talk about the expectations of staffers and advisors and how much they can really do. And we'll talk about the power of restraint. We think of the action hero presidency. What about the president who doesn't do anything? That may be the smartest power of all. What does that mean for a president who is so demonstrable as Donald Trump? We'll examine the exchanging media landscape a lot. Donald Trump is obviously a new kind of president who uses distraction in a way that other previous White Houses could only dream of. And we'll look at the, the way in which other presidents have done this. This is from Conversations with Kennedy, Ben Bradley's book about his relationship with Jack Kennedy. Talking about a news conference that Kennedy held with the television networks. I watched at home, Bradley wrote, and felt professionally threatened as a man who is trying to make a living by the written word. The program was exceptionally good, well-paced, colorful, humorous, serious, and I felt that a written account would have paled by comparison. After it was over, I called Kennedy to tell him all this. Well, Kennedy told me, I always said that when we don't have to go through you bastards, we can really get our story over to the American people. So, Jack Kennedy getting around the traditional press in a, in a way similar to what Donald Trump is trying to do. Similar, but not the same. Where do the differences lie? And what does that tell us about our current moment? And what does that tell us about how we should consume news now compared to the way we would have consumed it in the past? So that's some of the territory we'll cover. We hope you'll come along with us. Send your thoughts and ideas to whistlestop at slate.com. And we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks to try this experiment out. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who we're lucky enough to have along with us for this new ride. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson.